welcome back to Educate, the alternative classroom experience brought to you by Katie Conn from her childhood bedroom. And I know that I've said it quite a few times before, but I am in a handmade, man-made or woman-made fort all by myself and it still hasn't collapsed on me. It has a couple of times, but since the last time a couple of weeks ago when I rebuilt... It's actually doing quite well, so round of applause metaphorically for my thought. <laughs> right, moving on, sound a bit bonkers there. Um, hi, I hope everybody's well. It's week goodness knows what of lockdown, so I think everybody's probably feeling like it's Groundhog Day and we're all living the same day over and over, and then somehow it gets to the weekend and then we somehow zoom our way through it, quite literally, um, and then just get back to Monday morning, so... I hope everybody's going to be having a lovely weekend while you're sat listening to this podcast, um, or if it's a Monday and you're catching up. Hello, it's nice to see you. Well, not see you because you can't see me, but it's nice to feel your presence. Right, moving on. <laughs> Don't know who I think I am. Right, so last week I was joined by the fabulous Holly Shern, who left me a voice note all about her experiences with cosmetic surgery. And she basically talks super openly and honestly about the reasons why she decided to have cosmetic surgery, how she found the whole experience in terms of, you know, the physical trauma of it, but also what people were saying about her choices that she was going to make. And she speaks about her recovery and offers advice for people that are thinking about having cosmetic surgery. So it was just a really interesting topic to listen to and learn from. So all of my thanks go out to you, Holly, for just being an inspiration to everybody. And I hope that I can take your honesty leaf out of your own book. I mean, I've, I think I've just mixed up a totally different expression there. But basically, I want to be you. Is that too much to ask? Is that too much to ask? I don't think so. <laughs> so speaking about another woman that I would love to be as well, um, I'm joined for the second time by the splendid, incredible, beautiful, hilarious, cool, trendy gal. <laughs> I'm going to stop now. I'm joined by the legend that is Deanna Lynn Cook. And so this is the second time that she's come on Educate. She came on in the days pre-COVID when live time discussions were a thing. Seems strange now that, you know, we could we could do that once upon a time. All sit in a, I say studio, sit in my lounge and discuss things. Uh, the only problem was the humming uh, of the fridge. So gosh, to, to, to hanker after those times, hey? But anywho, we make do. So I've basically roped in Deanna to do another lesson because I just think she's the teacher that I always wanted when I was at school. And I think this about a lot of my friends that are, you know, doing higher education and really looking into the histories and just uncovering facts about topics. And I just feel like Deanna is so succinct and accessible in the way she talks about histories, specifically about how the past informs the present. And I just think that she's amazing and I just would love to be in her brain for for a week and just you know have a good old explore see what's going on in there but uh this is sounding slightly strange now so i'm going to stop but in this lesson that Deanna delivers on a fantastic voice note. She talks all about colourism. And I have to say, colourism isn't necessarily something that I really know too much about. I've heard it in various discussion circles, but if somebody asks me to explain what colourism is specifically, its origins, how it informs current social discourse, specifically among black women, 
I really wouldn't know where to start. So a fantastic way to start is to listen to Deanna. And I hope that while you listen to this lesson, you also think like me, why did we not learn this at school? And why do I not know this now? So without further ado, I always say that and it sounds so strange. Without another moment's hesitation, over to you, my lovely Deanna. Lincook and I am shall we say a historian in training I'm currently doing my master's in black British and Caribbean history um, and have an interest in researching race um, in a historical context and today I'm going to be speaking about colorism uh, I thought I'd start with a story um, takes place about two or three years ago I was doing my shopping in Westfields and um, a lady came up to me and she had two children behind her and I was in um, a popular cosmetic shop, just buying some hair products. And she said, oh, what cream do you use? And it threw me off for a second because I was thinking about whether I needed a deep conditioner or just a regular conditioner. And asking me what cream I used, I was very confused. Um, but I told her that I tended to use cocoa butter, <laughs> um, you know, as I do. And she said, oh, okay, could you recommend me a product? Because I'd like my daughter's skin to be as light as yours. And I think the breath went out of my body and I didn't really know what to say. Um, and I looked over at her daughter um, and there was nothing went through my mind other than confusion and then pain because I felt like if this little girl was growing up uh, with a mother who couldn't see any other way for her child to survive maybe in this society without having lighter skin. I was just quite concerned and shocked and very worried. And so I told her that she didn't need to lighten her daughter's skin after a very long pause, don't get me wrong. I kind of stared into space for a good like minute or so. I told her she didn't need to do that. That was dangerous for her skin and she'd probably ruin it before making it any better um, or making it better at all. Of course, you can't make skin better. There's nothing wrong with her skin. Um, I felt like I didn't say enough to her, but then I also realised that teaching someone to unlearn hundreds of years of oppression and racially based discrimination is not something you can do on a Saturday afternoon in a cosmetic shop. Um, I think I was so shocked by this instance because obviously I'm aware of colorism, I know what it is, um, I've seen it manifest in different ways today and historically, but I didn't realise how common it was uh, within, you know, just the average individual person. I thought it was something celebrities did. You know, I'd seen pictures of Sammy Sosa, Little Kim and, of course, Michael Jackson, who had gone from, you know, one shade of black to a much lighter one. And I obviously knew it was a thing and I knew why people did it. But this is bleaching um, and the lightening of skin using um, skin products that have um, I think it's peroxide in them that you know can lighten lighten skin and um, just a lot of chemicals essentially you know burning away the pigmentation um, of your skin in order to become fairer or lighter and I was aware of it happening in other cultures not just um, with black people 
I studied Hinduism for my GCSE RE course and we looked at the caste system uh, within Hinduism and you know a few of my friends said oh yeah we have lightning creams and I've seen some of those lightning creams in the hair shop. Um, I knew it happened in you know East Asian cultures, uh, Korean beauty products, a lot of them do contain lightning products in them, we don't even realise it, they're marketed as brightening products but really they are lightening your skin um, and I knew that there was an appeal with being lighter um, but the fact that it was so prevalent, I guess, that this woman wanted to do that to her daughter in, you know, 20, 2017, 2018, um, it was wild to me. I think before we begin, it's really important to, you know, give some definitions uh, to some of the terms we're going to be looking at. Firstly, colorism uh, is a term coined by Alice Walker in 1982. And it is the prejudice or discrimination against people with a darker skin tone, typically among people of the same racial or ethnic group, um, which typically just means, uh, you know, the preferential treatment, really, of light-skinned people over their darker-skinned counterparts. Um, So where, you know, two people are otherwise the same, maybe educationally, qualification-wise, the idea that the light-skinned person would come out favourably in most situations because... um, based solely of on their skin colour. Um and whilst this obviously impacts, you know, men and women, I think it's important today to focus on women. Um, partly because, you know, I tend to be a historian that just looks at women because women were so overlooked for so long, um, historically. Um, but also I think that it impacts women in a different way uh than men. And within the black culture specifically, I think men culturally have upheld colorism um for for women in rap music uh in popular culture um i think everybody can think of a rap lyric where their favorite male rapper is hailing up light skinned women ye- yellow women lighties red bones um you know that kind of idea that you know being a light-skinned woman is more attractive um has definitely been upheld by men um you know not just in american rap but in grime as well um and i'm sure you can all think of song lyrics and artists that do that without me having to name any names um also as you can you know imagine i think it's easy to to note dark-skinned and light-skinned men within the media within acting within um singing and art um, who are, you know, famous and prominent and doing really well. Whereas I think with women, it's a lot harder um, as a dark-skinned women, woman to progress in those industries. Uh, Lupita Nyong'o has spoken on it. Um, UK artist Lioness has spoken on it. And she left music altogether because she was told so many times that she'd uh, need to be lighter or, you know, she's not lying her skin to kind of, to get where she kind of wanted to be in music. Um, all of the, not all, most the vast majority of women we see uh, in the media today on youtube as influencers uh in kind of rap in singing um are light-skinned women you've got rihanna beyonce cardi b Nicki minaj teflon dunn maya jamma mabel yara shahidi zendaya they are all of a lighter hue um and you know it is believed that it is easier to get ahead um having lighter skin in those industries and I think that's definitely the case I think it's proven as as I've said we can see that within society today um there's tv shows 
you know, the black American sitcoms, American sitcoms, sorry, um, that kind of uphold this as well. And I think they are so progressive in so many amazing ways, but when it comes to colorism, they kind of don't help. Um, you've got shows like The Cosby Show, which is obviously quite old, um, Sister Sister, Proud Family, Marlon, Blackish, That's So Raven, Fresh Prince, My Wife and Kids, Black AF of more recent times. Um, and they all uphold this formula of having you know, a black man who is the father in the family, um, who tends to be, you know, any race, uh, sorry, any, any race, he's black, any skin tone, um, and then a light-skinned mother, um, and an even lighter-skinned daughter who, you know, for the most part is acted out by mixed race or biracial actresses, um, you know, in a black family, it really does stick out when you think about it, um, to the point where in, you know, Fresh Prince, there was dark skin Aunt Viv for the first few seasons and then she got switched out for light skin Aunt Viv. In My Wife and Kids, you had dark skin Claire for the first few seasons and then she got switched out for a light skin version. Um, and whilst, you know, you could attribute them to, to other things, to different factors, I think it's quite telling that this formula is just so prominent across so many different shows. Um, you know, you can only call it coincidence for so long. <laughs> I think this is also upheld you know by the idea that the beauty industry is um a billion a billion dollar industry and it is targeted towards women um you know men's skincare hasn't taken off just yet i'm sure it will soon um i'm sure capitalism will find a way to convince men that they need to to start using 79 products to have clear skin um you know but until then the beauty industry is targeted at women um and for the most part um growing up and the experience of dark-skinned women growing up was the fact that if they wanted to buy a drugstore foundation uh, to match their skin tone, they probably had one option in L'Oreal's Dream Matte Mousse, uh, which was was not, not a great formula at all. Um, and apart from that, it was, you know, that was the only option, or you'd go to a high-end um, brand. And now, and even in high-end brands, you would struggle to find the right colour for you because they were not catering for darker-skinned women. Thankfully, you know, Rihanna and Fenty Cosmetics have helped um, and the kind of idea that you need to actually be inclusive of all colour shades uh, is becoming normalised very, very slowly, but it's happening. Um, you know, the idea that lightning creams exist um, within the beauty industry and within that market... Um, and these products are accessible for young girls to use um, and women alike. I think whilst colorism is an evil, it's a seed planted by white supremacy, uh, it's definitely the daughter of racism. I think it does disproportionately affect black women uh, more than it does black men. And I'm sure there are studies uh, within the workplace about how colorism can affect darker skinned men, especially in America. Um, but that is not the conversation for today, um, as we are talking about women. Um, and I think, really and truly, we kind of have to, to question, you know, within ourselves, whether we uphold colorist practices, whether we have colorist beliefs, you know, even as black people. Um, obviously, it's assumed that black people are not racist, um, as you can't be racist to yourself. Um, well, you can. <laughs> But by definition, you can't really. Um, but are we upholding colorist practices? Um, and I think, you know, as a, even as a non-black person, um, it's a question you should be asking yourself. Um, and you know, when you look at celebrities and influencers and you know those in the public eye, we kind of have to ask, you know, where are 
dark skinned women and where are their stories and why are they only cast as the best friend or the sidekick that tends to be portrayed as aggressive or the angry black woman? Why are they not the daughters or the wives uh, in the black sitcoms? Um, and when will this start to change? <laughs> think it's important to go back and look at history um, and see why colorism is a thing it has been defined also as colorism being the daughter of racism um, and a seed planted by white supremacy and i think that sums it up quite perfectly actually um, it started as you can imagine um, on the slave plantations you know when the european powers that be decided that they wanted to go and colonize brutalize torture rape pillage the rest of the world um and it has you know the impact of that has been seen through colorism not just in um black countries like africa and the caribbean uh, but also in asia um especially in india um these policies and these categorizations of people um have definitely had a lasting impact and I think it's important to note that race uh, is a social construct. Um, yes, race is a social construct. You heard that correctly. Um, and that does not mean that race isn't real. It is clearly real. We all have different pigmentations of our skin. However, the categorizations used are socially constructed. Um, they are decided by, you know, whoever is in power at the time and whatever is preferential to them and then upheld by laws. Now, we've got many different laws and many different rules. In 20th century America, you've got the brown paper bag test um, and kind of precursor to that, the one drop rule. Um, plantation slavery had categorizations for literally every single percentage of blackness and whiteness that you could be, which I'll go through later. Um, but let's start with, you know, the American context uh, since we are here. Um, so the one drop rule, um, it has, it's been said to be used by white people to maintain a degree of order and to uphold a kind of covert white supremacist ideal. Um, and Langston Hughes, the poet, he wrote in his memoir, he said, you see, unfortunately, I am not black. There are lots of different kinds of build in our family, but here in the United States, the word Negro is used to mean anyone who has any Negro blood at all in his veins. In Africa, the word is more pure. It means all Negro, therefore black. I am brown. Now, there are about seven different shading um, colours uh, in that little um, statement, and I think it just really pertains to the idea that Wherever you go in the world uh, as a black person, uh, you will probably be categorised as something different. Uh, in Africa, it's very unlikely that they're going to categorise you as uh, black, which is what he says. Um, whereas in America, as a black person, you'll probably now be called an African-American because they think it's a bit more of a polite tone. Uh, I've been called African-American in America as a black person, but I'm not African-American when you think about it. Um, there is a whole history behind um, that. Um, however, you know, these categorizations are what make race a social construct. Um, now, before the American Civil War, if you were of mixed ancestry, which was very common because uh, white slave owners 
um, would rape um, black slaves um, and obviously, you know, force them to have children in order to, to have some free labour to work their plantations and continue the slavery lines, uh, especially after the um, slave trade was abolished. Obviously, slavery continued, but the trading of Africans had to stop. So slave owners tended to ramp up the rapings uh, in order to get more people and more bodies on the ground. Um, and right. So the yeah, prior to the American Civil War, um, you know, there was a lot of people that were mixed um, and they were ten. they tended to be absorbed into kind of the white majority. Um, however, um, you know, they wanted to kind of uphold what they called racial integrity. Um, and what they had was um, this idea that if you were a quarter um, black or anything less, you would be defined as white. However, in 1924, they have a racial integrity act. So even if you were one sixteenth, um, that kind of idea was abandoned um, and you were defined now as coloured, um, i.e. black for classification and for legal purposes. Um, the one drop rule is this idea that if you have literally any black in you at all, any small percentage of black blood, you were to be defined as black. This kind of manifests later on in the 20th century um, into the brown paper bag test, which said, you know, if you were lighter than the shade of brown on a paper bag, the ones that people typically carry their lunch in in American films, um, then, you know, you would be let into the, the club or the sorority fraternity or even the church that would uphold these rules and if you were any darker you were deemed as unacceptable this is believed to have started in new orleans um in the french colonial era um but you know kind of became more widespread especially um in universities in sorority and fraternity settings uh within the context of the caribbean this was slightly different and they actually had categorizations and names for every shade of um every shade of black or brown or beige that you could be um so it started off with, you know, a black person and a white person. If they had a child, that child would be obviously half black and half white. Um, and they would be defined as a mulatto. Um, and then if a mulatto had a child with a, a black person, they would be defined as a sambo. And that so that meant you were three quarters black, you were a sambo. If a mulatto instead had a child with a white person, that child would be a quadroon and they were three quarters white. You've got a musty, who is the child of a quadroon and someone white, which would make you seven-eighths white, you were a musty. If a musty had a child with a white person, they would be 15th, 16th white, I think. Please don't quote me on that, my maths is awful. But you would be a mustafino. Now, this is where things get interesting. If a mustafino, so a mustafino being someone that is 15th out of 16 parts white, had a child with a white person, uh, there would be a quinteron, and legally defined as white. Anyone prior to that on the list of people I just mentioned would have been legally defined as black. Um, but a quinteron, so someone that, you know, is, I think that would work out about 132 um, black, that is when you could define as white. Anything before that, you would you were classified as black, which is quite strange for us to think about maybe because you can imagine um, what someone might look like if they were, you know, 15th, 16th white, they would be extremely pale um, and maybe now would be would be defined as someone that's white passing. Um, they would probably look quite white, um, but they would be still defined as black. And uh, it was really important. They, they had to keep ancestry records um, and they were big on that 
back in the day, um, especially on slave plantations, because, you know, so much would so much would be tied up in your name and your um, heritage and your ancestry in terms of what you owed, owned um, in terms of land uh, and people. Um, so, yeah, these kind of ideals have continued on today. Um, and, you know, this is kind of one of the reasons why in the Caribbean colorism is so upheld. Um, all of these kind of manifestations of colorism, they all go back to a point of control. The European white elites wanting to control black people, especially as they kind of move towards freedom and freedom from slavery and emancipation. You know, there were lots of manifestations of, um, slave societies in the Caribbean and in America, and they would all look quite different, but there were, in most slave societies, um, after a period of time, uh, freed black people. Um, they all were defined by different things depending on where you were. Um, but I think white people um, who, you know, were so comfortable with owning land and owning people and having so much power and influence socially and economically, they wanted to find means to control people. And so they implemented uh, all these categorizations and all these laws relating to it in order to kind of keep control of the freed uh, recently freed black populations uh, that were kind of being able to buy their freedom and outwork their freedom um, and that is kind of the way that that has manifested itself and that is a kind of historical trajectory now you know there are very specific situations and contexts in different states in america different caribbean islands um, and there are different categorizations of black people around the whole world depending on where you go, which is all very confusing. Um, but it kind of, I guess, upholds the idea that race really is a social construct and depending on where you are in the world is will depend on what you are classified and defined as and with that, what laws you can have. Obviously, you know, if you were black in the slave times, you did not have the right to freedom. Um, so I think it's interesting to think about the history of uh, colorism but obviously more importantly how that is manifesting itself in today's society you know so many hundreds of years on um so yeah i think i'll leave you with that idea that idea that seed the seed planted by white supremacy is colorism and whilst colorism isn't necessarily racism you know it is the daughter of racism um, and I'm going to leave you with that. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Bye. I just want to say, Diana, thank you so much for being yet again so eloquent, so matter of fact and just so informative in the way that you discuss your findings and the insights that you've gained through your own research. I just think that you are the history teacher that the modern world needs to listen to. I think there was just so much in there to really, really think about. I personally didn't really know that there were lots of different categorizations of race, specifically in black cultures all around the world, that differ. I think that's probably a really naive thing for me to say, especially as a white woman. But that is something that had never really crossed my mind. And I think it's also so important, and you so rightly point out, that the reasons these categorizations exist in the first place is because of white supremacy and the need for white people to feel like they can still have control. And I think that that is just so messed up. 
but it's so important that you've highlighted that. Colorism entirely has its origins in slavery, and I think that it's really important that we recognise the reasons why colorism is what it is today. Also, something that will definitely not leave my brain is the imagery that you painted when you just said, teaching somebody to unlearn a hundred years in racism is something you cannot do in a cosmetic shop. And as soon as you said that sentence, I just felt so sad, really. And, and that's me saying that, so I can't even imagine how you were feeling at that time, and that mother, and that little girl. I just think, what a sad interaction that was, and well done for speaking your truth, and for just, you know, setting that tone right. And I really, really enjoyed the fact that you just so eloquently explained about black sitcoms and the absence of the darker-skinned black women in those sitcoms. Nobody's ever really explained that to me before. And the more I'm thinking about it now, <laughs> the more I'm thinking, yeah, there, there is a big problem there. Um, and that really, really needs to be addressed. So thank you very much for pointing that out and for informing all of us once again with your fab brain and insight. So Dee, I just want to say thank you ever so much once again for your time and energy in delivering such a seamless and interesting lesson. I know that there's just so much to take away from that and unpack in our own brains and in our own space. So thank you very much for all giving us a starting point to think about issues like colorism in much more detail. And I have to say, I mean, I definitely want you to do another episode at some point. So if you fancy doing another, this gal's here for you. And I'm sure the listeners are too. So once again, thank you ever so much, Deanna. You've nailed another second episode on Educate. And I think we're going to have to make it a third at some point. So tune in <laughs> for that WhatsApp that's going to come through. Um, but look, Listeners, if you're enjoying Educate, I would be so grateful if you could give us a follow wherever you listen to your podcasts. And also, if you could, it would be brilliant if you could give us a cheeky rating and review um, on Apple Podcasts because it makes more people listen to the show. And also, if you follow Educate underscore podcast on Instagram, you can keep up to date with what's going on in the Educate world. But thank you so much. Have a brill weekend. I hope you're all doing something fun with your bank holiday. Woohoo! See you later. <laughs> <laughs>